Thanksgiving. All right, yeah. Sam's going to call us back in. You guys want to grab a seat, grab a beverage, grab a seat? And if you want, you can turn to Luke chapter 13. That's where Sam's going to be leading us in a reading. Luke chapter 13. And we'll let Sam take it away. Okay. A man had a fig tree planting in his planted planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. He said to his fine vine dresser, vine dresser, look for look for three years. I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down, and should it use? Why should it use up the ground? The vine dresser answered him, Lord, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit in the future, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> Woo! Good job, buddy. All right. So... Jesus starts out his ministry with these words. Time's up. God's kingdom is here. Change your life and believe the good news. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. That's what launched us into the season of Epiphany. Those were the, the revelatory words that launched Jesus into his life and ministry. But let's be honest. When you hear the word time's up, the phrase time's up, do you, is your first instinct to think it's good news? Anybody? When you hear time's up, is everybody like, yay, right? Maybe if you're ahead in the game, time's up is a good news. Like Cohen's basketball game yesterday, like we were all counting down the seconds because it was way too close for a fifth grade basketball game and we were way too intensely invested for a fifth grade basketball game. But as, every, we, that, as soon as that clock buzzed, time was up. We were like, yeah, we won. But the week before, we, were the, we had the opposite reaction. <laughs> Maybe if you have all the answers bubbled in on your test and you've double-checked all the answers and you hear time's up, you feel pretty comfortable. But if you didn't get to go through a second time, or you had to skip a section and didn't get to go back to it, maybe you don't feel quite as good. Or maybe, perhaps, if you have an apple pie in the oven, you hear the word, time's up, you're really excited to go enjoy whatever has been cooking and smelling up the house. But, as we acknowledged last week, the truth about life is that we often find ourselves lost, separated from the place of flourishing, buried under the dust and grime of daily living, or like today, less fruitful than we desired when we hear the words, time is up. Time is up and is, if we're honest, sometimes not the easiest word. So when we hear Jesus say it, and we hear Jesus call it good news, we are, if we're honest, a bit skeptical about how good it is. I mean, honestly, just a little bit, right? When Jesus says, time is up, it's good news, we're like, okay, is it really good news? After all, if life by our own means is over, and life with God is here, will we really be able to measure up to the expectations of such a life? If time's up, and it's time for God to measure, it's time for God to come look at us, is it really such a good thing that time is up? Don't we always think that there will be more time, or at least that we will need more time? Some, I think, think they'll measure up, or at least measure out better than the average, like those who addressed Jesus in the preceding conversation to today's parable. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 13. That's where we're at. We're chapter 13, 6 through 9. But if you'll notice in the verses just before it, there were those who assumed that the arrival of the end, the time is up, is 
hostile, violent, fearful for those who stand, uh, who had something significant to hide. They tell stories of those who had perished and assume, as Jesus says, do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than all those other Galileans because they suffered in this way? They thought because they didn't suffer in that way, they didn't get the consequences that these, these Galileans had, that they were in a better spot. So time was up was good for them, but not so good for these guys. You can almost hear them say, you have nothing to fear in the end if you have nothing to hide. If you have no secret sins or one of those sins which you just can't come back from. But Jesus is quick to tell these who think that the time is up is all good news, at least for them and not for everyone, to get lost. That is, to repent. To let go of that way of thinking before they find that the end really is therein too. He says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Truth be told, while we might not be brazen enough to say that bad things happen to bad people or that what we get when we get ours is just reward for our offenses, nonetheless, we operate in the mentality, if we're honest, that when it comes to divine actions towards us, we're judged by our fruit. Somewhere along the way in face heritage, I don't know where exactly or when it happened, the idea of being known by our fruit has turned to be into being measured by it. Which is kind of makes sense, right? A little bit. After all, there are certain expectations for living in God's house. Even the ones of us who have been carried there, dusted off and restored, like we talked about last week in the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And if time is up and we don't meet those expectations, then how can what Jesus is saying really be good news? Well, in today's story, Jesus tells both the mistakenly confident and the unnecessarily fearful that, yes, God does have expectations for our life in his life. And the truth that what we can expect from him when that time is up. And he comes looking. That it reveals to us why such truth is indeed the gospel. That actually God coming looking for us is actually the good news. So let's look at the story, starting with a little bit of context. <clears throat> All right. So, in Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, we have this story that Sam just read for us. And Ari read for us earlier a portion of Zechariah's vision shared with God's people as a plea for repentance. This is an Old Testament prophet, a minor prophet, so most of us probably haven't read Zechariah. Or we did, we passed through it really quick in our Bible reading plans because it's only a few chapters or whatever. But Zechariah came long before Jesus... <clears throat> at a time when, when, the, when God came to measure up Israel, to see if they really measured up to expectations. And they were found lacking in those expectations. And so at the same time, in the midst of God coming to his people, he calls these prophets to call them back into uh, restoration with God, to call them back into repentance. And he gives Zechariah this vision, a vision of time being up as God measures to see if they lived up to expectations, a time when God's kingdom would come after this measurement. He says in Zechariah 2, I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. That God's kingdom was coming, that this was the good news, that in the midst of measurement, there's also this idea of restoration. At the time of measurement and return, God takes hold of the, right of the high priest, Joshua, who is not so prepared in his priestly duties to lead the people into communion with God through worship and their way of life. So God does something about it. He arrives to restore and to redeem, and yet the people aren't ready to be restored and redeemed. Their high priest is, in uh, Zechariah 3, one who is clothed in filthy garments. He's not ready to be one to lead them into the presence of the Lord. And yet, the angel of the Lord said, Remove the filthy garments from him. 
He said to Joshua, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestment. I will make you one who can commune with me and who can lead others into communion with me as well. And not just for the high priest, but also for his priestly counterparts. He said the angel of the Lord solemnly assured, he intentionally assured Joshua. He wanted to make Joshua know that this was actually true, something worth hoping for, waiting for, being a part of, and his friends, that God would bring my servant the branch. That same branch that in Advent we waited for, right? The Advent we longed for. The same root of Jesse. And he would remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In a single day, in a single action, all the iniquity of not just the high priests, but all of the people would be removed. And then we are given an image that was seared into the minds of God's people from that point forward. Zechariah says, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor, invite all those amongst whom you dwell, to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The same vine, fig tree and vine as we have in our story today. In a single day, Zechariah says, God acts. And in that day, that follows. So in a single day, God acts. In the day that follows, not like a literal day, but actually an era, a length of time, an epic, every one of us will invite our neighbors into God's kingdom, into God's peace, as the prophet Micah describes it. Same time as Zechariah, about the same time frame. Micah comes in and says, God will judge between many peoples and shall decide the strong nations far away. And they shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they, they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. All this God acting, God judging, God restoring, God measuring, God making peace, would have been in the minds of those listening to Jesus when they hear of a fig tree in a vineyard. We might not hear that initially, right? We just think, oh, there's a tree in a garden. Awesome. But not everybody listening would have heard, this is what is happening right now. God is acting. God is judging. God is restoring. God is measuring, making peace. In other words, time is up. The end. God's kingdom is coming through judgment, ending all that ends life and bringing a long-awaited peace. Life together with God and others, restored to his creation's design. So in the story's first line, judgment, here's a Jew, has arrived. I mean, think about it. The story just before this is of people who died and those who thought, they were asking Jesus, did they die because of their own sins, because their sins were so great? Did they die in these horrific ways? Did God act against them because they deserved to be acted against? And then Jesus tells a story about judgment. Or at least that's what would have been heard on their, on their ears. Time to measure up. That's where their minds and hearts would have gone, whether in comparative confidence or in stomach-turning timidity, right? Because not everybody listening to Jesus thought the way those in the story before thought. Some, as we talked about last week, were those who knew themselves well enough to know that they were pretty lost, that they were outsiders, that when God arrived, measuring up wasn't going to be something that they would measure to. And that's where if most of us, I think, get stuck, whether to in overconfidence or in timidity. But as we said a couple of weeks ago, there is another side to the time is fulfilled. A brighter side that stirs us not just to an urgency to get right. There's a piece of that, right? Time's up. We got to finish. We got to get done with it. We got to get right with it, right? Like Cohen's game. We got to win it. We got to put the bucket in, right? There's a piece of that. But there's also this side of time is up that stirs within us an energy 
that empowers us with the expectation that we can actually live differently. Not that just we must get right, but that we can actually live differently. While time is up, it can also feel intimidating. It can also be the time is ripe. I think that's what the angel of the Lord said to Zechariah. And that's what Jesus is saying to us. Finally and fully, God's action is to end, to end all that ends life and thus bring out the life dormant and dead has arrived. So here, in his story, Jesus tells us what we can expect when God finally does find us in that day. So, a little bit of context to the story. Again, everyone would have recognized this when Jesus, when Jesus said it. All the Jews in the, in the moment, all those listening to, to Jesus at this time, would have heard in this context, time is up. It's time to measure up. It's time for God to measure. And Jesus is telling them a story of like, okay, what do we expect to find when God finds us at, when time is up? And so, Jesus tells this story. Verse 6. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Again, while we said the fig tree in a vineyard had a historical symbolism, there is, says one author, in how Jesus chooses the details of the story, at least a suggestion here that the Lord in the parable is principally a grape grower. That he has, after all, a full-time vine dresser. He uses the term vine dresser on purpose. He talks about having a vineyard and fig, and those things go together to form an idea of peace, of God's kingdom coming. Again, to set in mind those who are listening, that, hey, this is about the time is up, that God's kingdom is here. This is, this is about what this parable is about. But Jesus tells it in a way to make us assume that the, 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 the main production side of this, this Lord of the land is, is grapes. He grows grapes. He has a vine dresser, not a farmer. That's important. It's in a kind of important little detail, again, that most people in that day and age would have picked up on. And therefore, since he has a vine dresser and not a farmer, that he's primarily a grape grower, that we can assume that the fig tree is planted more out of personal delight than out of entrepreneurial practicality. That is, the tree exists in the garden more for pleasure than for profit. Which is kind of an important detail, right? That if this story is about God coming to find us, and us standing before God when time is up, when God's coming near us, that the thing that we're compared to isn't so much the vine that produces for profit in the field, but to the fig that produces for pleasure. It was planted for pleasure and not for profit. The Lord's attitude toward the plant involves favor from the start then. Grace is not something he drags in later to patch up messes. Delight, affection, love is the very root of the Lord's relationship with what he presumably has planted out of delight and purposefully in his land. This is the assumption, all in the first, first line, that something about this vine dresser, this landowner, has caused him to plant a fig out of delight. And so the whole way he thinks about this fig tree is different than production. Completely different than production. That doesn't mean he doesn't expect produce, right? But it isn't to bring a yield for his profit, but rather to bring something for his pleasure. To this living thing planted in pleasure, the master of the yield came seeking fruit. In verse, verse 7 it says, And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I have found none. 
Not only does he come seeking fruit, he comes seeking fruit often. What did the Lord of the vineyard expect to find from what that which he delighted did he establish? What did he expect to find from the thing that he delighted to plant? Well, I mean, what he should expect, right? What does he expect from a fig tree figs? A fig tree produces figs. A live, living, healthy fig tree produces figs. Not more than figs, not apples, not pears, not bananas, not gold, not, not anything else. It produces figs. And he comes to look for figs, what it should produce. What by its very nature it is made to produce, right? Life flourishing, operating as it is designed, bearing the fruit, not just the fruit of its own existence, but the fruit of its existence in his good soil, his place of pro, where, where he has nurtured it, where he has, he has bound it into his garden, where he has done everything to cultivate its life. That's what he expects. He expects that his efforts for the tree would allow the tree to live full and fruitful. Not just that the tree would do it by itself, yes, in part, but the tree would do it because it's a part of his land, because he's cared for it, because he's delighted in it. And listen, we notice this because the vineyard owner doesn't just come looking once, but many times over three years. We just read three years and just think, okay, that means once a year he came. But a fig tree could produce fruit between six and ten months of the year in most Middle Eastern climates, just depending on, what, on the different, different climates. But even if it didn't produce quite that often for that long, at minimum, there is a late spring and a late summer season for figs, ensuring that the Lord of the land had plenty of opportunities to find what he was looking for. And that he wouldn't have just come once or twice, like once a year, every time, but he would have come every season, in season, when it was meant to produce fruit, expecting there to be fruit. Because of the labor he's put into the land, because of the land itself, it's a part of his good land that he's taking care of, and because the expectation is rightly so that the fig tree would produce figs, right? On top of that, making a few agriculture and cultural observations that I won't get into, many Middle Eastern scholars argue that the tree was probably nine or more years old at this point. It's not a new tree. It's not a young tree. It's not a three-year-old tree. It's a tree that is nearly a decade old. And this is so it's no newly planted sprout. And that tells us that the Lord is neither unattentive nor quick to judge, right? That he's been long patient with this fig tree. That though in his patience, he is persistent and consistent in his expectations and desires for the thing which he delights. For the figs to produce, for the fig tree to produce figs. But clearly something is wrong with the fig tree, right? And the Lord of the vineyard is demonstrably upset. And he lets his angst spill out to the vine dresser. He says, cut it down, in verse, verse 7. Cut it down. Literally, dig it out. You don't cut down a fig tree in the Middle East in a garden. You actually dig out the roots. You dig it up and completely remove it. And he says, dig it out. Why should it use up the ground? Why should it exhaust the ground? And this sounds like really harsh, right? But again, think about it from the context of the Lord of the Vineyard, who has spent nearly a decade who planted this tree in delight, expecting pleasure, has given it everything that he can give it, and expects that his life poured into this tree would produce life. And so now he's exhausted from his, from his efforts to a degree, right? His patience is out. And it's not just his patience, but can you hear like just the emotion of one who's, who's labored long for something and doesn't see the fruit of his own labor? Have you ever been working at something and you worked really hard at something, maybe hanging pictures, um, and trying to get them straight. 
um, or things like that. And finally, after like 35 attempts and nothing, the level never levels up and it never measures up, you're just so frustrated at everything. You're ready to throw the hammer. You're ready to throw the pictures. You're ready to throw all that kind of stuff. That's kind of what's happening here. I'm just, you're just done with it. You're done with the project. You're done with the, you're done with the thing. That's kind of the emotion that the, the owner is expressing. But all he simply states is the logical truth that the tree takes life from the ground and does not produce new life from what it receives in the soil or care. That's all he's saying. He's saying he's frustrated. And listen, the tree is obviously not taking advantage of the life that it's been given. It seems dead inside. The master's emotional response is nearly a confession of giving up. Letting the tree be what it clearly is, the living dead. It's alive still, but it's not producing fruit. There's something blocking it from the, from the life of the soil coming into the, the life of the limbs. It's alive, but not really, certainly not fully. So he says, dig it out, uproot it. He says, in, in, with a long, patient disappointment, the tree, it seems, has no advantage from being in the garden. It seems to be taking no use from the soil, so why keep using the soil? It's not taking advantage of it. It's not working for it. So why is it still here? The vine dresser enters the scene. He's been called into it by the owner. But now we get to hear from him in verse, verse 8. And he, the vine dresser, answered him, the Lord of the land, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Lord, let it alone. The little translation is forgive it. Let it alone. Don't touch it. Just let it be. Literally forgive it. The vine dresser argues with the Lord, does not argue with the Lord's judgment. He doesn't try to say to the Lord of the land, no, 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 no the fig tree's okay. It's all right. It's all right. It's good. Don't worry about it. Like, no, you're right. There's, it, there's no fruit, but it's okay. Everything's okay with it. He doesn't try to argue for it being the fig tree being okay. He doesn't try to do anything against the, the Lord's judgment, but he knows the heart of the Lord's expectations and appeals to that source of emotion. So he says, forgive it. Be patient even longer with it. Overlook this, this coming right now until I dig around it, until I loosen up its roots, get down to its roots and put on manure. Listen, there's a couple things that the original hearer would have heard. One, what's a vine dresser doing with, with trees, with a fig tree? His job is not the fig tree. His job is the vines. That's what he keeps. He's not meant to keep the, the trees. So, and yet, at the same time, this vine dresser is going to take responsibility above and beyond what his daily responsibilities are. But here's the deal. There's no indication that the vine dresser has slacked on his duties towards the tree or that the landowner has slacked on his duties from the tree. Nor is there any indication that there was a drought or that the soil had turned poor. Neither is there any indication that the tree just needs more time to mature into production. Again, a decade-old tree nearly, in a good land with good soil, having been tenderly cared for, delighted to be planted, consistently come back to and looked at and nourished and all those kind of things. There's no indication that any more could have been done for it. Still, the vine dresser takes responsibility for the tree that delights the Lord, perhaps because it delights him too. Even in its fruitless state. He takes responsibility for it, not in its fruitfulness, but in its fruitlessness. And he puts together a persevering plan. He'll do the work, not of uprooting the tree, but digging ever so carefully and painstakingly around it 
doing everything possible to ensure that the roots are good, that the soil is not caked around it. He'll get down into it. He'll look and he'll make sure in every sort of way that he can that the life source of the tree is actually able to bring in the life source of the soil, the place of the garden. And then he'll even go further than that. He goes so far to make himself filthy and unclean. Physically, he's going to mess with manure. That's going to be stinky, right? But again, this is first century Judaism. To mess with the manure makes yourself ritualistically unclean too. He's, he's going to get himself dirty in every sort of way he can get dirty. Every possible way that he can get dirty. For this tree that has not produced fruit in a decade. And he's going to make sure that he puts this manure down at the tree's base, not just on the topsoil. It's not just a, like when my trees look like they're a little in a little need of help, I'm going to put a little extra fertilizer around them, right? I'm going to give them a little extra water. This vine dresser, whose responsibility is not the tree, necessarily, goes and says, I'm going to give full attention, detailed attention. I'm going to get down and make sure the roots are healthy, and I'm going to put on manure. I'm going to make myself dirty in order for it to make sure that it has every chance of meeting the Lord's right and reasonable expectations. Not just a little bit of work, but all the work. The vine dresser doesn't say that his efforts are surefire, though, or will produce results quickly. We continue in verse, in verse, um, verse 9. The vine dresser says, then if it should bear fruit next year, the literal translation is in the future. So not just in a year. He's not just giving it a time frame. You're not saying, hey, the next season. He's like, hey, forgive it. And then you might need to forgive it again. <laughs> Maybe again. But at some point, it's going to bear fruit. Like, just continue your long patience with the tree. Then well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. Then you can dig it up. The vine dresser said, doesn't say that his efforts are sure fire will produce fruit quickly. Nor does the vine dresser argue that the Lord should change or lower his expectations or that the master has misjudged the situation, right? He doesn't assume any of that. He assumes that the master got it right, that, that he should expect fruit, that he should expect the, the tree to, to have fruit, that, he sh that, it, that indeed the tree isn't for producing fruit. But what the vine dresser is saying is this, I think. That time is ripe and time is up, they go hand in hand. The God coming to us and saying, our time is over. Life on your own is over. God's life in you, God with you is here. Time is up and time is ripe, go hand in hand. Listen, Kenneth Bailey, a, a, a New Testament Middle Eastern scholar said, the word originally translated, let it alone, is the New Testament word for forgiveness. And there's no misunderstanding about what Jesus is discussing. Forgiveness can be offered. This forgiveness, again, this, this idea that, um, that the forgiveness that the tree needs is simply it not living up to all that it's been given. Naturally, it's a fig tree. It's meant to produce fruit. Situationally, it's been given everything it needs for life. And it bears no fruit of life. And so does it need, its need for forgiveness is need for this patient, enduring, continuous, long-suffering, Right? This forgiveness for not being what it's meant to be and doing what it's meant to do. But that will mean nothing, says Bailey, unless some help for the tree comes from the outside. Life as it is expected in God cannot come from within the resources of the tree itself. And never does the vine dresser nor the landowner expect it to. Not at one point in the story is there assumption that the tree could do this on its own. 
The assumption that the tree will produce fruit, it produces fruit because it's been in a garden, lovingly planted, diligently cared for, consistently washed after. In soil that has produced life well enough for a, vine, for a vineyard owner to have a vine dresser who can take time to look after his fig tree. The, soil, the, the fig tree is never assumed to be on its own. Always is it assumed to have help. Not only did it have help in its original intention, but now it has help in its restoration. It cannot, the tree cannot gather the strength it needs from its own roots. The vine dresser must act to save the tree. At the same time, the tree must respond to those acts or they will be of no avail. At the same time, the tree has to respond to the diligent work of what's being done for it, in it. Bailey's observation, I think, sounds a lot like Jesus' assessment of the truth of things. He says in John chapter 12, If I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I didn't come to measure you up, to say time is up and you're done. I said, come to say time is up, time is ripe. The one who rejects me does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. There will, be a, there will be an end at some point. Eventually the tree will produce fruit or not. Eventually all the efforts put towards the tree will either bear fruit or not. The tree will receive the efforts or the tree won't. But the father didn't come. The, vine dresser, the Lord of the land didn't come. The vine dresser didn't come to end the tree. But so the tree might actually continue on. Why do you think the landowner even invited the vine dresser in? Jesus says it like this in John 15, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so what energy compels the Lord of the vineyard to plant the fig tree? What compels the vine dresser to take on more responsibility and effort to ensure that what the Lord delights in should be all that the Lord desires it to be? Could there be anything less than the power of love? That's what got things started in the first place, right? A delight and affection. That's what holds out for life's potential to come to bear, isn't it? Not just hope, but love. I think that's what John would say later to his faith family in 1 John. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. That God is love, and whoever abides in his love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence, when? For the day of judgment, for the time when time is up. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love, who hasn't known the care of the vine dresser. We love because he first loved us. So as confusing as this parable may be, I think it opens us up to some things, to what we can expect from God and why, and what we can expect, what God expects of us and why. But in order to help us kind of process that, we're going to process it together.
So as we did last week, we're going we're gonna to break into groups around us, turn around, talk to somebody. If you're new with us or this is new to you, it's okay if you just want to listen. Um, it's all right to just listen, but we do this a lot as a faith family. We think a part of hearing the word is having a chance to respond to the word, is having a chance to help each other respond to the word so that we can actually live these truths out. It's not just good enough for us to hear it. We need to help each other walk through it. And sometimes in this setting, we like to make space for that. And so what I'm going to do in just a second, I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to give you, we'll have, we'll have about 13, 14 minutes or so just to chat with each other through this parable, what we've seen in it. What does God expect of us and why? What can we expect of God and why? And what looks different if we actually believed that Jesus' story is the story of how God interacts with us? And not just us, but our neighbors, our coworkers, our spouses, our children, those that we don't get along with or don't like. What if we believe this is essentially the truth of who God is and how he acts in the world? What would be different if we actually believed that? Would anything be different if we actually believed it? So let me pray for us, and then we can break up into groups and chat for a little bit. Father, we thank you for a time to step into a place where we can, together, as those who are longing to hear from you, to know you, to try to live life well with you, hear the words of your Son, and have a chance, Father, over these next few moments to encourage each other to let them sink down into our hearts. And so I pray, even in these next few moments, that you, Spirit, would fill us, that you would speak through us, that you would um, help each one of us encourage our friends and neighbors, Father, Lord, in a safe space to hold fast to what is true, to Christ in us, Christ for us, to your mercy that is patient and enduring. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. But most of all, thank you for your son and whom we have life. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Talk amongst yourselves. Um, you can, three or four people, groups of four-ish. And we've got about 15 minutes to do that, 12, 15 minutes to do that, okay?